This is section thirty three of Mark Twain, a biography. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain, a biography by Albert Bigelow Payne. Volume one, part one, eighteen thirty five to eighteen sixty six. Chapter thirty three The Prospector. It was not until early winter that Samuel Clemens got the real mining infection. Everybody had it by that time. The miracle is that he had not fallen an earlier victim. The wildest stories of sudden fortune were in the air, some of them undoubtedly true. Men had gone to bed paupers and on the verge of starvation, and awakened to find themselves millionaires. Others had sold for a song claims that had been suddenly found to be fairly stuffed with precious ores. Cartloads of bricks, silver and gold, daily drove through the streets. In the midst of these things reports came from the newly opened Humboldt region, flamed up with a radiance that was fairly blinding. The papers declared that Humboldt County was the richest mineral region on God's footstool. The mountains were said to be literally bursting with gold and silver. A correspondent of the Daily Territorial Enterprise fairly wallowed in rhetoric, yet found words inadequate to paint the measureless wealth of the Humboldt mines. No wonder those not already mad speedily became so. No wonder Samuel Clemens, with his natural tendency to speculative optimism, yielded to the epidemic and became as frenzied as the craziest. The air to him suddenly began to shimmer. All his thoughts were of leads and ledges and veins. All his clouds had silver linings. All his dreams were of gold. He joined an expedition at once. He reproached himself bitterly for not having started earlier. Hurry was the word. We wasted no time. Our party consisted of four persons a blacksmith sixty years of age, two young lawyers, and myself. We bought a wagon and two miserable old horses. We put eighteen hundred pounds of provisions and mining tools in the wagon and drove out of Carson on a chilly December afternoon. In a letter to his mother he states that besides provisions and mining tools, their load consisted of certain luxuries, viz. ten pounds of Killikinick, Watts hymns, fourteen decks of cards, Dombey and Son, a cribbage board, one small keg of lager beer, and the Carmina Sacra. The two young lawyers were A. W. Gus Oliver, Oliphant in Roughing It, and w h claggett sam clemens had known billy claggett as a law student in keokuk and they were brought together now by this association both claggett and oliver were promising young men and would be heard from in time the blacksmith's name was tillou baloo a sturdy honest soul with a useful knowledge of mining and the repair of tools there were also two dogs in the party a small curly-tailed mongrel kearney the property of Mr. Tillou, and a young hound. The combination seemed a strong one. It proved a weak one in the matter of horses. Oliver and Clemens had furnished the team, and their selection had not been of the best. It was two hundred miles to Humboldt, mostly across sand. 
the horses could not drag their load and the miners too so the miners got out then they found it necessary to push not because we were fond of it ma oh no but on bunker's account bunker was the near horse on the larboard side named after the attorney-general of this territory my horse and i am sorry you do not know him personally ma for i feel toward him sometimes as if he were a blood relation of our family he is so lazy you know my horse i was going to say was the off horse on the starboard side but it was on bunker's account principally that we pushed behind the wagon in fact ma that horse had something on his mind all the way to humboldt s l c to his mother published in the keokuk iowa gate city so they had to push and most of that two hundred miles through snow and sandstorm they continued to push and swear and groan sustained only by the thought that they must arrive at last when their troubles would all be at an end for they would be millionaires in a brief time and never know want or fatigue any more there were compensations the campfire at night was cheerful the food satisfying they bundled close under the blankets and when it was too cold to sleep looked up at the stars while the future entertainer of kings would spin yarn after yarn that made his hearers forget their discomforts judge oliver the last one of the party alive in a recent letter to the writer of this history says he was the life of the camp but sometimes there would come a reaction and he could hardly speak for a day or two one day a pack of wolves chased us and the hound sam speaks of never stopped to look back till he reached the next station many miles ahead judge oliver adds that an indian war had just ended and that they occasionally passed the charred ruin of a shack and new graves this was disturbing enough then they came to that desolation of desolations the alkali desert where the sand is of unknown depth where the road is strewn thickly with the carcasses of dead beasts of burden the charred remains of wagons chains bolts and screws which thirsty immigrants grown desperate have thrown away in the grand hope of being able when less encumbered to reach water they traveled all day and night pushing through that fierce waterless waste to reach camp on the other side it was three o'clock in the morning when they got across and dropped down utterly exhausted judge oliver in his letter tells what happened then the sun was high in the heavens when we were aroused from our sleep by a yelling band of Paiute warriors. We were upon our feet in an instant. The pictures of burning cabins and the lonely graves we had passed were in our minds. Our scalps were still our own, and not dangling from the belts of our visitors. Sam pulled himself together, put his hand on his head, as if to make sure he had not been scalped, and then with his inimitable drawl said boys they have left us our scalps let's give them all the flour and sugar they ask for and we did give them a good supply 
for we were grateful. They were eleven weary days, pushing their wagon and team the two hundred miles to Unionville, Humboldt County, arriving at last in a driving snowstorm. Unionville consisted of eleven poor cabins built in the bottom of a canyon, five on one side and six facing them on the other. They were poor three-sided one-room huts, the fourth side formed by the hill. The roof, a spread of white cotton. Stones used to roll down on them sometimes, and Mark Twain tells of livestock, specifically of a mule and cow, that interrupted the patient, long-suffering Oliver, who was trying to write poetry, and only complained when at last an entire cow came rolling down the hill, crashed through on the table, and made a shapeless wreck of everything. The Innocents Abroad Judge Oliver still does not complain, but he denies the cow. He says there were no cows in Humboldt in those days, so perhaps it was only a literary cow, though in any case it will long survive. Judge Oliver's name will go down with it to posterity. In the letter which Samuel Clemens wrote home, he tells of what they found in Unionville. National there was selling at fifty dollars per foot, and assayed two thousand four hundred and ninety-six dollars per ton at the mint in San Francisco, and the Alda Nueva, Peru, Delirio, Congress, Independent, and others, were immensely rich leads, and moreover, having winning ways with us, we could get feet enough to make us all rich one of these days. I confess with shame, says the author of Roughing It, that I expected to find masses of silver lying all about the ground. And he adds that he slipped away from the cabin to find a claim on his own account, and tells how he came staggering back under a load of golden specimens. Also, how his specimens proved to be only worthless mica, and how he learned that in mining nothing that glitters is gold. His account in Roughing It of the Humboldt mining experience is sufficiently good history to make detail here unnecessary. Tillou instructed them in prospecting, and in time they located a fairly promising claim. They went to work on it with pick and shovel, then with drill and blasting powder. Then they gave it up. One week of this satisfied me. I resigned. They tried to tunnel, but soon resigned again. It was pleasanter to prospect and locate and trade claims and acquire feet in every new ledge than it was to dig, and about as profitable. The golden reports of Humboldt had been based on assays of selected rich specimens and were mainly delirium and insanity. The Clemens, Claggett, Oliver, Tillou combination never touched their claims again with pick and shovel, though their faith, or at least their hope in them, did not immediately die. Billy Claggett put out his shingle as notary public, and Gus Oliver put out his as probate judge. Sam Clemens and Tallou, with a fat-witted, arrogant Prussian named Fursdorf, Ollendorf, 
set out for Carson City. It is not certain what became of the wagon and team, or of the two dogs. The Carson travelers were waterbound at a tavern on the Carson River, the scene of the Arkansas sketch, with a fighting, drinking lot. Fursdorf got them nearly drowned getting away, and finally succeeded in getting them absolutely lost in the snow. The author of Roughing It tells us how they gave themselves up to die, and how each swore off whatever he had in the way of an evil habit, how they cast their tempers, tobacco cards, and whiskey into the snow. He further tells us how next morning, when they woke to find themselves alive, within a few rods of a hostelry, they surreptitiously dug up those things again, and, deep in shame and luxury, resumed their fallen ways. It was the twenty-ninth of January when they reached Carson City. They had been gone not quite two months, one of which had been spent in travel. It was a brief period, but it contained an episode, and it seemed like years. End of chapter 33 The Prospector Read by John Greenman